0: Hey there, welcome to the RIM Church Podcast. We're so glad you found us. The RIM Church is based in San Antonio, Texas, and we believe in loving Jesus, building family, and changing the world. Wherever you find yourself today, we trust that it is not by accident that you're listening to this message, and we believe that God has something to speak to you right where you are. For more information on what we're all about, go ahead and visit us at therim.church or follow us on Instagram and Facebook. We hope you enjoy the message.
1: Awesome, thank you. Uh, hey, uh, if you're you're in college or you took the summer off like you were a college student, can I like hear you? Like, are you here this morning, college students? There are four of you. Awesome. Uh, the rest of you just took summer off like you were in college, which is cool too. Uh, in that, we're, we're grateful that you're here. If we haven't met, my name is Brad Hobbs. Love to be able to, to, be able to shake your hand, uh, get to hear a little bit of your story uh, after our, our gathering today. Uh, but this morning, we're going to jump back into a series that we started a couple weeks ago uh, called Deconstructing Egypt. And it, it's this idea that as a people... What does it mean to, to flourish the way that God designed us so that we would actually live in a place of peace in a world of chaos? And this morning, we're going to pick up that story in Exodus chapter 3. So if you want to turn there, you can do that. If you're, you're like typing notes out, uh, the title of our, our, just our, our time together in Scripture today uh, is Twice Orphaned, Once by Birth, Second by Religion twice orphaned, once by birth and second by religion. From Freud to Maslow to even current writings in psychology like uh, Brene Brown and Daniel Pink, uh, it's, it's pretty, pretty clear that as psychology as a study has been developed and worked on, that there are four core needs that are deeply hardwired into the soul of every person. Those four needs... or or ultimately safety, both psychologically and physically. Second is love without contract. So that that, that I would be loved, not based on what I do for someone or based on how I perform or what I look like, but that I would be loved for who I am. The third one is affirmation. And as much as we don't like it, like uh, even the most secure macho person in this room loves to be affirmed for who they are. And the final thing that as you study the, really the past 200 years of psychology is that all of us deep hardwired into our soul is that we long to have purpose. And when you look at these things, and, and it kind of makes the analogy, like if you want to like write that, or excuse me, the acrostic slap, uh, safety, love, affirmation, and purpose, that there are two things that eat away at that literally at the heart of a child that keep us from experiencing these things in their fullest. The first is if a child is ever physically, mentally, emotionally, or sexually abused, it actually eats away and tears at these four things in a way that is very hard to repair. The second is if a child is orphaned. And primarily, when you study the, the, historic, the history of movements and people, that when a child is orphaned, primarily when you look at safety, love, affirmation, and purpose, those are typically things that are passed down from a father to their children. And when, the, when that breaks down, what leaves an orphaned child or an orphaned spirit, they actually develop what's called an orphan's identity, in an orphaned identity, you, you no longer have someone to provide safety for you, love for you, affirmation, or even to help you process purpose. So that means it's now your responsibility to find all of those things. And we, we know that, that ultimately all of us have experienced seasons in our life where we were not safe or we did not feel love, affirmed, or we wrestled with our purpose and we looked for things, we looked to solve those things or bring medication or relief to those longings from other people, uh, work, our, our performance, uh, what, what some authors have, have used as counterfeit affections that we would try and we would work to, to solve this itch, this longing in our hearts. To be loved and to be safe for things that would provide temporary relief at the cost of long term reality. And so, as we we walk through this, I want us to actually look at Exodus chapter one real quick. You don't have to turn there. I think we're going to put it on the screen that communities, not just individuals, can develop an orphaned identity. And in Exodus chapter 1, uh, some Jewish scholars would say this is the most pivotal verse or pivotal narrative in all of Jewish history. Now there rose a new king in Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now, if you remember, about 210 years before this, about 205 years, if you will, uh, Joseph is taken to, uh, sold into slavery, goes to Egypt, and gets promoted, and basically saves the world from famine. God places him there. All of at that time, the Israel, the people of Israel, the community moves to Egypt, and they flourish under while Joseph is alive. But now there rises a new king over Egypt who did not know him. And he said, Behold, the people of Israel have become too many for us. If we go on to say, Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they'll join our enemies and fight against us and escape the land. Therefore, let's set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. So so the people of Israel actually become slaves in the land that they were prospering under underneath Joseph. And in this passage, you, you begin for the, to calculate Jewish history. This is the very first time that the community of Israel doesn't have a father figure in its story. If you remember how this happens in Genesis chapter 12, God, for the, really the very first time after the flood, appears to a man by the name of Abraham. And he looks at Abraham and he goes, hey, look, Abraham, you're going to follow me. We're going to take you to a new land. I'm going to give you a land of promise, a plan, a land, literally a space, Canaan, flowing with milk and honey. You're going to flourish there. And not only that, I'm going to give you children as many like as sands on the seashore, stars in the sky. And the nation of Israel, so Abraham's son was Isaac. Isaac becomes kind of a a father of of a big family, and then Isaac has Israel, or Jacob, and Jacob is kind of this father figure, and for the very first time in history, there's not a father figure for the nation of Israel, and not only are they not a father figure, they got to the land of Egypt based on a promise God had given their great-grandfather, Abraham, And so at this moment, they are slaves for 210 years in this season without a father and an empty promise. And when we look at this narrative, when you start to to think about what what is the, in this shaping of this story that we don't we as a church don't inject ourselves into Israel's story? But how why did God write this as a part of their story so that we begin to shape our story and we begin to see that so much of our life is even as people who follow Jesus we can develop and we keep an orphaned identity trying to figure out how does how does religion how does faith solve both the greatest challenges in my heart. And I get this idea of a father where God reveals himself as a father, but right now I don't actually feel it. And so as we work in a world of chaos in a world where, where everything is anxious and we're, we're actually wired in our culture to perform and to, to get to the next thing and to solve problems and to figure out and manage the chaos, how do we actually experience the peace of a heavenly father? And if you begin to to look at a little bit further in the text, God begins to reveal himself as point number two as a whatever-it-takes kind of dad. A whatever-it-takes kind of dad. In Exodus chapter 3, this is where we're going to hang out most of our time this morning. Exodus 3 verse 7, I think we'll put the verses on the screen if you don't have a Bible with you. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt and I've heard them crying out because of their oppressors. I know about their sufferings, and I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them from the land to a land that is both good and spacious, a land flowing with milk and honey, the territory of the Canaanites, the Hethites, the Amorites, the Peserites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. So because the Israelites cry for help has come to me, I have also seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, go, I am sending you to Pharaoh. This is, this is God literally talking to Moses, the this, this story through a burning bush. Go to Pharaoh so that you may lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses asked God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt? He answered, I will certainly be with you, and this will be the sign to you that I am the one who sent you. When you bring the people out of Egypt, you will all worship God at this very mountain. Then Moses asks God, if I go to the Israelites, and they say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask, what is his name? What should I tell them? And God replied to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you were to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me. This is not the very first time that God has used that name, I am. It's actually the word Yahweh in scripture. But you can also translate that name, I will be that I will be. I will be what I will be me. I will be whatever I need to be to accomplish what I want to accomplish because I am both creator, designer, and controller of all things. But to understand that, you actually have to skip down to the next chapter. Same same narrative conversation with Moses. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 21, he says, Then the Lord instructed Moses, When you go back to Egypt, make sure you do this before Pharaoh, all the wonders that I have put within your power. But I will harden his heart so that he won't let the people go. And you will say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. In Exodus chapter three and four, for the very first time in any recorded history, God actually reveals himself to Moses and says, go to all of my people, the people of promise and say i am yahweh i will be that i will, what i will be i am that i am and i choose to reveal myself not as a god not as a ruler not as a creator but as a father of my firstborn son and i will do whatever it takes this is this is the the translation to the application i will do whatever it takes to be a good father to them so the god of the universe who creates everything decides to rescue his people, not as a savior on a white horse, but he actually comes in as a father and he gives them an identity, not as orphans, but as firstborn sons, which if you know in any culture outside of really the, the, the West, to be the firstborn son means you, you inherit everything that the father has. And so he comes to Moses and he goes, these people, I will do Whatever is necessary to be a father to my child. The problem with an orphan identity is that it rules us by fear instead of trust. And so God is trying to reveal to his people that you can trust him and he will do what is, whatever is necessary to be a father to them. He wants his sons to, to learn the heart of dad. And, and, and as we get closer to the heart of our, our heavenly dad, we actually learn to trust him. And then when we trust him, we actually can experience the perfect love that he gives. But First John 4 would tell us that until we trust, we cannot experience the perfect love. Because love drives out all fear. And so when we look at this text, we begin to see that God is going to unpack for them what it means to be a whatever-it-takes kind of father. Um, my name is Brad. It's straight Brad. No Bradley, no Bradford, straight Brad, all right? Uh, my parents uh, were not, not crazy creative, but my entire life, like, people go, oh, it's Bradley, it's Bradford. No, it's, it's straight Brad, all right? And so, uh, the, the, which is awesome. Uh, Love my name. Um, It also rhymes with some other things. And I I have three kids. I've shared that before. Ten, eight, and seven. My kids are amazing. Uh, That's not even just being biased. Love them. They're amazing. Uh, But as a parent, sometimes I have to tell my kids things they don't enjoy. uh, Any other parents ever do that with their kids? Like the reaction is not, oh, wonderful father. You look so, you are so looking after my well-being. It typically comes with like some uh, stomping of feet, depending on what kid, uh, stomping of feet, um, some screaming, some storming off, all those wonderful things that uh, attention will do. Um, my seven-year-old that was super creative, the only boy that I have, he figured out that Brad rhymes with bad dad Brad. So, so on occasion... When I have instructed him to do something that he does not want to do or that he uh, uh, does we, you know, hey, it's nine o'clock. We're not watching another dude perfect for the 14th billion time. I will get a, you're a bad dad brat, which I've started to wear as a badge. Uh, it, it hurt at first. I've started to wear as, as a badge. Because my seven-year-old can't quite comprehend that I actually have his very best in mind. He will actually get mad and frustrated with me even though I will do whatever is necessary for his heart to flourish. And so as we look at a God who has already articulated, I will do whatever is necessary to be a dad to you, we have to live with the reality that there are times that our Heavenly Father has a perspective that is far greater than ours. And when, in doing so, he will often tell us things that in a moment we don't necessarily like or want. And for the nation of Israel here, we see in Exodus, right after this account, Right after this account, in Exodus chapter 7 through Exodus chapter 12, he's going to reveal to the nation why he can be trusted. He does so in 10 plagues. I'm actually going gonna, gonna to outline these 10 plagues for you. These plagues were both judgment, but also his track record. And in, in the very first plague, he turns the Nile River into blood to show that the, the Nile, if you study Egyptian history, was the source of all economy and all of life. It's what made everything grow. And he turns it into blood. And yet somehow the Israelites still flourish when the Nile River is turned into blood. He's revealing that he is the source of all things. The second thing is he, he uh, great plague All right. He turns, he basically unleashes frogs all over the whole territory. And when he comes to him, when Moses comes to Pharaoh, he doesn't say, hey, Pharaoh, when do you want the frogs to go? Pharaoh goes, hey, I don't want you to go today at four o'clock. Don't make them disappear today. I want you to do it tomorrow at noon. What a random request because Pharaoh understood that there was magic and he he thought there were several gods. It wasn't about power. It was the ability to say, hey, not only am I powerful, but I can be precise with my power. In every bit of time, I'm a good father in the timing of things. Third thing, he takes dirt. He literally takes the sand of Egypt and turns it into gnats. That our God literally can create what is dead, what is dormant, and has no life in static. And he can breathe life into it. The fourth thing is he sends flies. Uh, I mean, I, I grew up in gnats and flies and all that kind of great uh, uh, developments of the devil. The 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 flies. He only sends them to the Egyptians and basically draws a line and says, they won't touch the Israelites, that he is our protector. Then he destroys the Egyptian livestock, but not the Israelites' livestock. That he is a God, a father that will provide. You look at the sixth plague. Now he, he looks at them and he sends boils to all of the Egyptians. And then in a moment, he heals them. That in the middle of a sickness, that our God is a God who cares and sees and is the caretaker and the healer. The seventh one, he sends hell, get this crazy picture, literally hell with fire in the middle of the hell. So ice and fire to destroy the land. And in the middle of that, he tells all the Israelites, and he actually tells all the Egyptians, if, if you will go under safety, it won't, it won't harm you. That he is the God who provides a, a hand of safety. He is the preserver of everything that is good. As whatever the hell and fire did not destroy in the eighth and the seventh Seventh plague, he sends the locusts to destroy and he preserves everything that is good and needed for the Israelites. The ninth thing, what's the the job profession of the Israelites in Egypt? They're, They're slaves. So he sends darkness to literally blind the eyes of every Egyptian for three days. Do you know what happens if your taskmaster can't see for three days? You get three days of rest. So in the middle of, of working and the Egyptians with almost every plague making it harder and harder and harder, God shows up and goes, I'm a father that gives rest. The 10th, he's a deliverer. He would actually pass through the land of Israel, excuse me, the land of Egypt and destroy everything that was the firstborn son, animal, uh, anything that was, could be born that was first. He He destroys, but he preserves all of the Israelites, and it's actually the plague that delivers Israel from their place of slavery. And so we see, if you were to look at all 10 of these things, the Hebrews would have quickly understood that all 10 of these things were the responsibility of a Hebrew father to pass down not just to his children, but to his grandchildren. And so God is trying to show the the nation of Israel at this point, a people with a orphaned identity that you can trust me. And if you can trust me, you can experience the depth of my love for you. And so when we look at this aspect One one simple truth. You have a heavenly father that will do whatever it takes for you to experience the perfect love that he gives. And your entire life is learning to trust him so that you can enjoy him. Our entire journey, every season of every chapter is a God literally deconstructing the orphan identity in our own minds and hearts, so that we actually can experience both safety, love, affirmation and purpose in perfection. The second thing that we, we see here is that there's an embracing of our sonship. The third thing, excuse me, the embracing of our sonship. In Exodus chapter 12. God gives the instructions for the very last plague. And it's pretty peculiar. It actually would set something, we call it Passover today. It was initiated in Exodus chapter 12. He tells the Israelites to go find a perfect lamb. He gives instructions about how they're supposed to cook it and eat it. Now, for you like squirmy people, like just just close your ears for just a second. But like you non-squirmy people, this is beautiful. He tells them to take the blood and put it both on the doorpost of the house and the lintel, so that when the, when the angel of death passed over, that would be a sign. And then the next morning, they would step through that doorway. All right, so here's, here's the screen thing. What's the only other time that you pass through something that is bloody on all sides? When you come out of the womb. God is actually giving them a picture their identity as slaves is gone and they're stepping through a new personhood, a new identity, a new role as firstborn sons and that he is their father. It's the same thing that Jesus would tell Nicodemus in John chapter three. How, how can a man be born again? How can a man ter- uh, uh, gain eternal life? And, and Jesus looks at him you, you must be born again. That passage is not just clichéness. What what God is telling the Israelites in Exodus chapter 12 and what Jesus is telling Nicodemus in John chapter 3 is that there is this reality that because of sin... We were born with, we were all born with an orphan identity. And the moment to follow Jesus is not this constant wrestle of like, man, do I, can I do enough? Is that if I go to church, do I do long enough in my quiet time? If I'm just a better prayer, then God will affirm me. No, what he's saying is, is that if you cross over a threshold and you no longer have to worry about that identity, that he gives a new identity and that identity is singular that you are now my firstborn son, which means you inherit everything and there's nothing that changes the way that I look towards you. I mean, what, what grace and comfort to go, I, I can screw it all up this week and my dad still looks at me and smiles. I can mess up my whole life and yet as a, a firstborn son of a perfect dad, he goes, Hey, nothing, nothing changes. I still want your heart and I still love you. So we see that embracing sonship, that there is a there's an identity of sons. And in order to embrace the identity of sons, there's uh, uh, really, i gonna uh, got a slide up there. An author by the name of Jack Frost began to articulate that there are some characteristics of the identity of sons with a heavenly father. The first one is this, is that there's, you actually believe that you have a loving father instead of a Master. The second is that you experience and live from the law of love instead of the love of the law. And, and as orphans, we have to meet all the rules and all the standards to be loved. But as sons, we go, I'm fully loved, so I get to love. The third one is that, that we are marked by peace because there's, we have a perfect father who controls all things. Which means there's nothing to fear. The fourth is that we actually get to live open-handedly because as orphans, we're constantly having to grasp for the next relief and the next feel, the next relationship. Did I do enough this time? But as sons, we've inherited everything, so we get to live open-handedly to serve, to give. The fourth thing is that sons believe they are affirmed, which which means I no longer have to live in the insecurity of this world. I no longer have to worry about what you think of my, my message, my talk today, because God has already affirmed who I am. It doesn't matter what your boss thinks of you in the sense of if he berates you, if he's ugly to you, if he's, if he's a jerk. Yeah, there, there may be some performance things to work on, but who you are from your identity cannot change because you're affirmed. The final thing is the spirit of sons live interdependent while the spirit of orphans live independent. Orphans scrap for everything they can get in life. Sons begin to realize that dad has put everything together and that I need you and you need me in order for us to actually enjoy everything that the father gives. So so like this aspect, there's no one that is embracing sonship that lives in isolation. There's no one embracing sonship who is a, a, a lone ranger saving the world. Because to embrace sonship is actually to embrace the fact as a community that as the firstborn sons of a king that we're all equal and he designed us to need each other uniquely and differently. And so how do we shift from the rule of an orphan identity to the rule of sonship? There are three things. One is that we daily own our own orphan spirit. Um, For later this week, if you want to just write down Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells a story about two brothers. Uh, One is a train wreck, and the other one is like Mr. Perfect. And both of them, Jesus says, have an orphan identity. That we daily recognize that fear, anxiety, a desire to perform, a desire for, for, for relational affirmation, that we seek it from all the wrong places. The second thing we do to, to move from our identity from orphans to, to sonship is that we receive and give and give forgiveness. We receive and give forgiveness. Like there's a repentance of our orphan identity that we have to surrender every day. Repentance is a big word to literally just go, "Hey, this is who I am, and I don't want this. I want everything that you have." So help me to turn away from that and to follow that. But the second thing of this is the greatest thing that keeps like, us from moving into sonship is that we, we receive forgiveness, but we give forgiveness. And typically, the people that we have a hard time forgiving are the people who have actually forced us more and deepened our orphaned spirit. Like, let, me, let me translate that for like uh, the vast majority of our, our congregation is like under the age of 35. Your parents created a lot of trauma for you. It's a part of parenthood. Until you can forgive your parents for the way they traumatized you, you will never be able to experience the depth of a perfect love from a Heavenly Father. That's hard until the person that spoke so many ugly truths and lies in your head, until you can can come to the place and go, I want them to experience the same sonship from a heavenly father that I have, it becomes very difficult to embrace the identity of a son. The third thing is there are four truths of sonship. I encourage you to to write down, take a picture of and preach to yourself on a daily basis. One, I am a son and daughter fully loved. Nothing can change that today. That's uh, John chapter 1 verse 12, 1 John chapter 3. The second is I live among orphans who need a father. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Here here's the, here's the reality. If you embrace the identity of sonship, the vast majority of the people in this room still live with an orphaned identity. Might be followers of Jesus, but still operating from an orphan identity. Which means they're going to hurt you. Which means... Orphans cannot help but to throw their elbows around and to scrap around. And so to remind yourself as a son affirmed, safe love affirmed with purpose from a heavenly father, that as people hurt you, doesn't mean you just absorb everything, but that you actually get to extend perfect love back, which is both righteous and just. The third uh, truth of this, this reality is that I am already affirmed, Mark chapter 12, verse 28 and 34. You can go back from Genesis chapter 1. You were made beautiful to enjoy everything that God could give to inherit his creation. The fourth thing is my dad will stop at nothing for me to enjoy his love. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 would say that God demonstrated his own love towards us while we were still sinners, while we were still orphans, while we were still rejecting him. By sending his son, his Jesus, to die for us. Like No, no greater love than that. So we have a heavenly father who invites us in to experience the perfection of love from a perfect dad. The final thing I want us to look at this morning is that as sons, firstborn sons, there's there's an inheritance as sons. Uh, Paul would write to the church in Galatians chapter 4. He would say, but when the fullness of time had come. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Those who had to perform. Those who, had, who, who were, could not be enough. So that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you were sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir. Through God, that the inheritance of sons is not just God's presence, but all that God has, all that He has He has made. And I, uh, like, I don't think we this this is tracking anybody's mind. But just if it's a, like it bothers you that God uses the term sonship in Scripture, like that's a male term. Uh, for all of eternity, He calls the church His bride. That's a female term, so it balances out all right just just as a that was free all right so it, it, but here's the question why doesn't god give us in this inheritance now if we inherit everything why doesn't he give it us it now why do we still wrestle Why do we still struggle with people hurting us? Why do we still wrestle with fear in our mind and anxiety? Why do we still try to live independently? And you have to look at the story, the narrative of Scripture, that he would take the people of Israel and he would, like from Genesis chapter 12 to actually inheriting the promised land, it's, it's north of 400 years. From the time of J- Exodus chapter 12 to the time they actually crossed the Jordan River and walk into the promised land of milk and honey, he would take 40 years. Jesus himself would take 40 days in the desert before God would usher him into his ministry. That The, the narrative of Scripture teaches us that God will not give us the fullness of his inheritance so that we can fully enjoy it until the orphan spirit has completely died in all of us. And so our journey, the, the discipline of a faithful, loving father, the goodness and the blessings of a, of a loving father are to work out the orphan spirit in all of our hearts. So that one day we may stand with him and embrace fully this identity as sons with no need, perfectly loved, the fulfillment of purpose. And so, what what ultimately keeps us from living out our sonship right now? The very first thing is, is fear from the father of lies that ultimately. Satan will continue to put lies in your head that oppose the reality of sonship. That you are not good enough, that you actually have to worry about tomorrow. That, that you have to have your life figured out right now. That, if, that you can't actually embrace the moment today as sons. The second thing is, when we, we begin to understand this, to embrace the spirit of fear is to ultimately reject the perfection of love. So question, in just a moment, we're going to take about two minutes of reflection, but I just want to write down, like what lies are in the back of my head that reflect the heart of an orphan? Fear is ultimately played out by pursuing counterfeit affections and a spirit of restlessness. Love how one author puts it writes a writes a book, author by name Pete an emotionally healthy leader. He goes, most leaders are afraid of the quiet. They're afraid to rest. Because ultimately they're afraid of what God might reveal in their hearts. Sons get to sit quietly and enjoy the love of a father because they know that he knows everything. He looks at it and he goes, I love you, I'm proud of you, and I want you to have all that is good and right. So what what do we do from here? just a moment we're going to take about 120 seconds it's a a practice of our our faith community our, our family here to just sit and go lord what are you saying to me and what do i need to do about it
0: thanks so much for listening we hope that today's message resonated with you it's our hope that you wouldn't be merely inspired but that you would actually be transformed by something you heard today at the rim church we always ask two questions when processing god's word what is God saying to you and what are you going to do about it? We encourage you to take a moment, reflect, and then to share with a friend or send us a message. We'd love to hear what God is teaching you and how we can help you take your next step in obedience. Until we meet again, we love you, church.